The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. At that very time, there were some present who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. He asked them, Do you think that because these Galileans suffered in this way, they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? The gardener replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. The Gospel of the Lord. Our ancient spiritual ancestors, for the most part, kept a pantheon of gods, some of them for the household, some of them for the community, some of them perhaps for the nation. Each of those gods had a particular name and had a particular role in their society. The ancient Israelites understood that to hold the name of a divinity was to hold some power over it. Just as, in a way, to know someone's name was to lay a claim on them, to have some power over them. And this was how much of ancient spirituality worked. You had that name, you could invoke it, You could use it for powerful purposes, and you could use it for blessing as well as for cursing. And of course, you know the old drill. You made the appropriate sacrifices so the harvest would be bountiful. And in the years when it wasn't bountiful, you had to scratch your head and ask what you had done wrong. as a spirituality based on power, to a greater or lesser extent, a level of manipulation and control. 
Into this context, we hear that very familiar story today from Exodus where Moses meets the God of the Israelites on the holy mountain, Horeb. And after introductions are made, Moses asks the natural question of an ancient people. When I go to the Israelites, whom shall I say sent me? In other words, Moses says to God, what is your name? Why? (laughs) So I can invoke it. I'm going to need it. I know that much. God offers a riddle. It's a play on words. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, which is a reading of the ancient, it's called the Tetragrammaton. It's the four letters in the Hebrew alphabet that are a stand-in for God's name. And it literally reads kind of I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. But the ancient Israelites understood that this was so significant that they refused to give God that specific name. And even more importantly, they refused to utter it in public worship. They would later substitute for it Adonai, which means Lord, which is why you see the Lord a lot in our contemporary English translations. All of this by way of saying, this is a God who will not be possessed or controlled. And maybe saying something fundamental about the very nature of existence, of being itself. It's kind of a radical and new notion for a strange people who swept away the pantheon, at least over time, and embraced this singular God without a clear name, a God they could not control. What's remarkable about this notion, though, is that not only was this a God they could not control and have power over, this was a God who, in a strange and mysterious way, had, instead of being in a relationship with manipulation and control and power over them, had called them out of slavery, out of bondage, into freedom, and gave them a fundamental choice. You can follow me, or you can choose not to. It's up to you. Moses is given the task of persuading his people to follow. And it digs deep into the tradition of covenant that was made with their prehistoric ancestor, Abraham, A covenant, it seems, that God already knows they're going to break and they're going to walk away from, but God is still bound to it and will remain faithful. Covenant will remain, the people will wander, they will wander and they will return over and over and over again. So they will be named Israel, that is, those who struggle with God. Is God without a name? 
Jesus encounters this ancient question today when some of his fellow Galileans come to him and say, you know, did you hear about the Galileans who were killed by Pilate, you know, the governor in Jerusalem who represents the Romans, and he's a pretty nasty guy. And just to drive the point home, he did this abomination. He mingled their blood with the Roman sacrifices. Jesus parrots back to them the subtext, which is they must have been really bad people for this to happen to them, right? Right? This is the assumption, right? Jesus says, no, that's not how it works. And to drive the point home, he points to the Judeans in Jerusalem, where apparently there had been some sort of building disaster and the Tower of Siloam had fallen and killed 18 people. Well, they must have been bad, right? That's why they die. Jesus says, no, that's not how this works. It's a nice thought. It's a comforting thought, isn't it, that bad things happen to bad people. But I'm sure none of us to a person would claim that, you know, for instance, the people of Ukraine deserve what they're getting in some way that we don't. We wouldn't say that, would we? Jesus again pulls out an alternative to that primitive faith where we think we have the control in our hands and we can determine our destiny and our fortunes. And that our good fortunes are a result of good behavior and our bad fortunes are a result of bad behavior. Jesus says, no, that's not how this works at all. Decades ago, the Christian author C.S. Lewis was asked about why there is evil in the world, especially very close to a time of war and enormous upheaval globally. And his answer, like the answer of all those who come before him, was hardly satisfactory. He worked very hard on it. He even published a book on it entitled The Problem of Pain. But he was known in his public speaking to tell people when they asked this question, the thing is that God wants us to grow up. And it is a little bit like raising children. Many of you have done this, and you know what it's like. We don't raise our children to be puppets on strings or automatons, do we? In fact, we consider people who just want their children to be representatives of themselves not to be very good parents. We raise our children to be independent thinkers. We raise our children to find their own paths. We raise our children mainly through the art of persuasion, not compulsion. And most of us who are parents have the scars to prove it, right? It's hard work. 
But we know we've succeeded when our children are able to make decisions on their own, when they're able to make their way in the world, when they know when they need support and when they know when they need independence, but most of all when we see them reaching out to others in love and compassion, right? That's when we know we've made some inroads. That is how God relates to us. That's Jesus' point. He uses that image of the fig tree in the garden, and there's a way in which Jesus is the faithful gardener. And what does he do? Well, he takes manure, and he puts it around the tree to cultivate it, to try to get it to bear fruit. This is what we do in our lives. We have more colorful terms for this, but, you know, we take the hard things of our lives, and we plow them back into the ground, and we hope that they help us and those around us to grow up and bear fruit. It's a very different paradigm, isn't it, from the paradigm of manipulation and transaction. It's a sense in which God invests in us and in a profound and theological way hopes for the best. And as Jesus reminds us, the time is short. We may have several decades left. We may have a decade left. We may have this year. We may have just this day. But the option to repent, to turn to what God has taught us is always there in front of us. Jesus is taking all the experience of our lives and is plowing it back into the depths of the soil in which we are rooted in the hopes that we grow up and bear fruit. This is the lesson of deep Lent. This sort of middle place we find ourselves in this season of springtime. where we are reminded that we are called to grow up, but we are not compelled to. That like the ancient Israelites, we have been freed from bondage, not only to the things that enslave us outside of us, but even to ourselves. We have options. We have choices. And if we are willing, we can grow and bear fruit. God wants us to grow up and choose good over evil. And more than that, to figure out what that is. And that's hard work. That's worth a lifetime's work right there. But most of all, God wants us to understand that we are loved and to share that love with others. Not because we are told to, but because we choose it freely. And in that way, become more like this God who is at the very foundation of all that is. This is our God.
Now we ask, who are we when this God calls us? I am who I am, says this God. And there's a way in which we should pair it back, well, I am who I am, too. So now what? God says, I will be who I will be. The question for us is, who are we? Who are we becoming? Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing community welcoming those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and a journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You may reach us by phone at 415-388-1907, search for us online, or visit our website at OurSaviorMillValley.org. We wish you God's peace, and we hope to greet you in person very soon.